everybody, and welcome to another episode of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Su Jin Ro. We also have Alex Bush. Hello, hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and I forgot to ask how to say your name, so here we go. Tamar Nachmani. Woo! Did I pass? Yeah, you, you, you could add a little bit of ch, Nachmani, but otherwise, that's perfect. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, I don't speak Hebrew, so uh, do you want to just introduce yourself and let us know who you are and why you're so important, all that stuff? Um, yeah, so um, I'm Tamar, um, joining from New York. Um, I Until very recently, I was a senior engineer at Glossier, um, doing some e-commerce engineering, also thinking about community. And before that, I've been at um, larger companies like Tumblr and also very small early stage startups. I have a kind of unconventional background that brought me to engineering and I'm known for being interested in everything, I think, um, you know, in engineering and so many other fields that I'm happy to talk more about. And uh, I guess I'm, I'm here um, after giving a talk at iOS Conf in Singapore, where I talked about my experiences building communities and community apps. So yep, absolutely really happy to yeah. be here. This episode is sponsored by Headspin. They are thrilled to announce Headspin University. The mission of Headspin University is to offer free intro classes as well as industry-leading certification courses focused on test automation skills using frameworks like Appium and Selenium. To kick things off, they have released the Appium Collection, which is a curation of Appium-related webinars and articles by Jonathan Lips, Appium Project Lead and author of Appium Pro. They've also released an Appium Pro intro workshop also by Jonathan Lips. Later this year, they will be releasing their first flagship certification course designed to teach and evaluate Appium and Selenium fundamentals. The course will include over 20 hours of production quality video training developed by Jonathan, code samples, code challenges, instructor evaluation, and free use of Headspin devices for training and exploring your own projects. Learn more at headspin.io. Now you've got me curious, what is your interesting background that brings you into programming? Yeah, I I was thinking before this call, like, I, I think it's a lot of different things together. Um, for me, I got really excited about becoming a software engineer, partly to kind of use engineering as an entry point to understanding the world. Uh -huh. I really like things like writing, which I also do, and engineering where there's a craft that's really fascinating in itself, but also is an entry point to Maybe you're working on social media and learning about communities and the needs that they have, or maybe you're building technology for healthcare and understanding like, how do you help people understand their health? So, um, and generally I kind of see, I like to learn kind of general um, fields like that so that I can kind of learn more about everything. Like I've done so many different things in my life. I was like a child opera singer. Um, I used to oh, direct wow. plays. Um, I write novels. I um, speak at engineering conferences and kind of do a lot of everything. I, I studied bioethics. So I, I was really interested in kind of um, getting into a field that could introduce me to so many other important ideas. And um, also kind of just like to make things like 
I basically got into engineering from the perspective of being an artist and wanting to explore tools for creating new things. So actually nice. interesting interesting point i also <clears throat> kind of noticed especially if you do consulting uh, you, you being an engineer you kind of become a domain expert to a degree of the thing that you're building this app or whatever that is for so yeah i, I can relate to you know learning new stuff mm -hmm. so you gave this talk about building community-based uh, software and you talked a lot about tumblr um, when I was watching the talk, I thought it was really interesting. The first point you made was just that for smaller communities, a lot of times we're thinking about scaling up. And in reality, what we're doing is, yeah, we're preparing to scale up and it, it can actually have a detrimental effect. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that um, scale can really benefit users because there's kind of a, you know, infinity of like on certain platforms, there's just like infinite content and especially on a platform that's really developed like Twitter or something like the platform knows what we like and can introduce us to like the world. Um, but I've noticed that um, in a lot of different spaces, small community has become a really important tool. Like um, just a interesting example from recently that um, is not social media, but just community-based um, kind of uh, solving like maybe the hardest problem with community was like, I recently went to a workshop that was focused on climate anxiety. Uh, people who are very anxious about climate change and the way that um, that workshop was approached was basically putting people into small communities where they could just hear about each other's thoughts and kind of resonate with them and say like, I, I feel this, I sort of, I've had the same experience and I thought it was really fascinating because like that's sort of such an, a complicated problem and like you can help people so much just through community and in particular small communities where instead of having to kind of self-promote, you're really connecting with other individual people and you don't have to be nervous about sharing. So, so how do you go about building an app for a community like that? For um, like, yeah, for a small for a community, community like that where people might might meet in person, they might not, um, you know, uh, it sounds like it's kind of a, a smaller gathering of people. So, yeah, how do you build something that allows those people to communicate in that way? Yeah, I mean, um, I think it really depends on what community you're serving and what their needs are. Um, and I really like the approach of, like, starting from first principles. So, um Let's say you're building a community for um, technical podcasters. Um, like, what are some of the things that you guys all struggle with? Um, are, are there things that you feel you know a lot about that you can help others with? Or are there things that, um, that you, like, haven't nailed yet that you would love, like, someone with very similar experiences to teach you? We just want to talk about gear. Gear? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Like um, what? Tell me. I I'd love to learn more about that. What? Well, like what's all the, best the mics, gear? all the all the arms and whatever. It's not, no, I'm just joking. I, I mean, I guess people do. Some people like to talk about it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you go to the podcasting conferences and they're talking a lot less about that and a lot more about um, how do you monetize? How do you find people for your audience? How do you? 
you know, how do you plan content, things like that. Yeah, something that I found really interesting in engineering conferences that I've gone to over the past few years is that often I do go as a speaker, but when I talk to people, people don't care that much about talks. They just want to meet other people at a conference mm -hmm. who have the same background or kind of work on the same problems. And, um, and yeah, like I think that kind of gets to the point of why community-based experiences are so powerful that like just sharing in an un, like unpolished way, just like in a conversation, like things that you've experienced is like really kind of empowering and also just really practically helpful for people. So in this talk that I gave recently, you know, I feel like often when I give talks, I try to like learn about something that I can bring to the community. And this time I was like, what if I talk about something that I've actually like, that I know about, that I've worked on before and kind of try to create that experience of like having a conversation with someone about your experiences, but like in a more detailed, like technical way. Yeah, what, like what I agree with Tamar is like, uh, I also spoke at a, at a conference last year and in, in actually in New York, like in TriFift. So I agree what she said about uh, people are more into like getting to know people instead of like the really technical stuff of the talk. So I, what I remember uh, what I got most from uh, my speaking experience is that um, not, be, not, not because uh, also, also some some from um, like preparing my talk, like get, getting deeper into the tech 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 stuff, but also like people coming up after the talk and just talking about real um, like life issues. So actually, after my talk, uh, some guy came up to me and he said, "I like this talk," and uh, there were a group of people forming, so we were talking, and then. All of a sudden, this one person started talking about his daughter um, going to college. And some other person also said, oh, I'm also preparing for college. And they were all like um, beginning to talk, uh, help each other on, on like college entrance. So I think that was really interesting. So people like people from people in uh, um, developer conference are not just like um, focused on uh, developing stuff. So. Yeah, yeah. I've been fun. thinking. I've been thinking a lot about um, as I was preparing that talk, like how things that are related to like principles of how you build community apps, how those things are relevant to our work, our kind of like daily work as engineers. One thing that I've learned through user research on projects I've worked on is that people really want to help. Like people really want to be helpful to each other, and that example is that that's what that is about. Is someone just hearing that some, someone they don't know is kind of starting to think about something or struggling with something and people really want to offer their experience. And I, I'm also kind of curious about how code bases, because we develop them socially often, unless you're the only person working on something, like how those sorts of product principles for community apps apply when developers aren't together at a conference, but are actually working on a project together. I mean, it's uh, the, the tribal knowledge, if you will, right, of, of the code bases. That's probably mm -hmm. what keeps happening, especially if people work with each other, kind of have experience working together for a long time. So they kind of know each other's preferences, quirks, things like that, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> then probably the code base will be shaped a certain way. But if you have 
I don't know, rotations constantly, then there's going to be a different shape of the code base because then you have to mm-hmm. be more plug and play modular, if you will, for the lack of a better um, kind of mm-hmm. term. Yeah, there, and, and it happens in kind of subtle ways too. Like, for example, I don't know if you've ever worked on a code base where everyone was very creative. Like, every part of the code base has a different pattern and um, kind of like a very opinionated person or a few people behind it. Aren't those it. the best? <laughs> I, you know, I, I, struggle, I struggle with that because I really... Okay, I struggle with that for this reason. The best code bases to work on are the ones where everything is the same. Like I, over the past six months, I've actually been focusing on uh, web front end stuff, like doing React development. Um, a while, when I was doing mm-hmm. working on uh, the e-commerce stuff at Glossier, and something really nice in that code base and in React in general is that there's just like a few patterns, like everything like everything looks the same. Whereas like in iOS development, I think we get bored and we want to make everything really interesting. But I struggle with that because I think that on the one hand, code bases that really enforce homogeneity are pleasant to work on, but at what cost? Like I think that when you bring in new people, if you really want to bring in new perspectives, that has to mean there's some level of kind of introduction of, new ideas and new patterns and experiments. And, um, and yeah, I think managing that, I think a lot of managing that is basically the art of like building trust in a group of engineers. Like, you know, maybe you're going to rebuild part of an app using um, Swift UI or something and, or, you know, using some, some new pattern as an experiment. And then kind of figuring out whether that becomes the dominant pattern or whether it's something that gets deprecated. I think the basis for that is the trust and the collaborative like culture of a team. Um, but it's important to kind of balance like bringing in new ideas and, um, and uh, keeping things uh, manageable, I guess. I personally worked on two opposites, opposite polar opposite projects from that perspective one was a mm, i don't want to say rigid because it still worked fine but it was the this unified grand architecture and another one and everything was exactly the same it was such a pleasure to work with (laughs) after you get over the boilerplate part and yes every engineer had to be trained so there is like a two-week boot camp type of thing when you join just to understand the architecture, right? Because <laughs> otherwise, you could work with it. it it's just going to take you, it's going to be a tough ramp up, right? Um, but then another one was, yeah, it was like, oh, let's have Swift UI something-ish here. And then another cute little thing over there and they don't fit together. So then when something breaks or you need, uh, God forbid, do, do like a app-wide redesign, like of UI, then is everything's difficult and hard. Mm-hmm. But then you could experiment, though. There was a lot of conversations about well, different approaches. It was hard to come to consensus, though. Unfortunately, yeah. yeah. One of the... oh, I, I was just gonna say, I think sometimes consensus is actually overrated. 
Like, I think that the average of two people's ideas is not necessarily that. Well, I guess that's not what consensus always is, but some vision coming through in the way something is built, whether it's a product or a code base and its patterns, I think is actually a really good thing, but in a yeah, way, it's more, it's more, it's more done like in a way decision. that is collaborative. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's something to be said though, for discussing what you're trying to do and then discussing the ways that you're going to get there and then deciding on what you're going to try and then moving forward with it. Right. Yeah. If you're, if you're coming to consensus where it's, well, we're going to halfway try your way and halfway try my way in software. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. That's usually how I approach it is um, kind of, uh, I mean, my part of my background is I studied philosophy and I'm really interested in kind of, it, it's actually interesting to me that that's become really random things have become important aspects of my work as an engineer that I wouldn't have anticipated. Like one is, studying philosophy and studying like how you debate arguments um and then also theater directing which i used to do and kind of how you get people behind ideas which is also related actually to the technical conversations mm-hmm. um in theater directing like the director kind of like creates a vision and get has to get everyone on board and then each person that you bring on board is better than you at something um, and maybe that's a good way to think about engineering teams too. And like figuring out what that thing is on a team where everyone is kind of doing the same role is more challenging on an engineering team than on, in a play where everyone really does have a different uh, purpose. But I think it, it's been very relevant actually. Yeah. I'm I'm curious as we kind of tie this back to building community apps, you know, what, what do you find as far as, yeah, you know, because let's say we were building it for a community we all understand, which is a small team, right? Or for small team communications. And we're not rebuilding Slack. We're building something else. Well, what do you do? How do you evaluate that community and then say, all right, um, you know, you need these features or you need those features or you're rather small, so we're going to make it so that it scales down nicely and then assume that eventually we're going to have lots of teams and so maybe we will have to scale up. Right. Something that I talked about in Singapore was this idea of foundational features that are evergreen and how they're used, which is kind of something that evolves as you understand your community better or as the community changes. So I think that basically when you're trying to understand a community that you're serving through creating technology for them, there's certain Often there's a lot of things that are, that are understood, but then the details of how those features work um, are like what you tweak. So for example, in, in the talk, in the section where I talk about, um, so basically just kind of for anyone who is listening who, um, or for you guys potentially who isn't familiar with the talk. So the talk kind of dives into two, does two deep dives into technical problems faced by uh, teams, either teams that I worked on or a, uh, an app that I worked on. Um, in the case of Tumblr, I talked about a project that another team at Tumblr worked on, but that I then built on top of in my work. Um, but in the Tumblr section of the talk, I basically talked about how the post architecture was changed such that 
the media of a post and by media, I mean anything that is the, the content of a post was abstracted away from the concept of posting, um, which was helpful for various reasons. And one is that like, as you try to understand what a community wants and this, these problems are very kind of similar, both like in serving existing communities and serving very small communities that are, you're kind of building out or completely new products. But basically, you know that people want to share text. They want to share images. In my opinion, you want to create the possibility of very innovative ways of sharing content. Mm -hmm. The innovative ways of sharing content are often not the things that are used the most, but what they do is re-energize a platform and open kind of like new possibilities for how people can communicate. So you kind of want the foundational things like Literally, you know, some way of sharing text that's compelling, way of sharing single images, multiple images, video, those types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not relevant for every community, but for, for many communities, all those fundamentals need to be there. Some kind of thinking around inter- regularly introducing more innovative ways of expressing yourself. Um, and what we did, what, what was done at Tumblr was to kind of abstract those pieces of media into content blocks, which on the back end were basically JSON objects with a certain structure. And on the iOS side were um, kind of types that conform to a protocol, a content block protocol. So rather than, and, and those were basically part of an array that is referenced by, that the post references. So rather than having a post directly reference a photo and having, for example, post types, you have a post reference and array of these objects that could be anything. And what that lets you do is say, yes, we know like on this platform, people are gonna wanna share their stories. So they're gonna wanna share text and photos, but we don't know how they're gonna wanna share them. Maybe it's public in a post kind of thing. Maybe it's in direct messages. Maybe it's in something ephemeral that has to have a different model than the other kind of not ephemeral parts of a platform. So it allows you to kind of combine building some foundations and then iterating really quickly to actually understand what your community wants. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. Yeah, I really like the pattern that you explained in your talk and that you just explained where it was a JSON object that you could then Essentially, it reminds me a lot of the way that you've mentioned React, right? Where then mm. you just have the data and then you have a structure that you drop it into a component. Um, right. You know, and you see, you see similar patterns with iOS. But yeah, then it just knows, this is a video, so I'm going to embed it this way. This is an image, I'm going to embed it that way. Right. And you just contain the information that it has to have in order to work. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think having a couple of patterns that are really... Um, that work like it's interesting when you're building a new product you asked about kind of how to build something for a small 
like a, a new product or a product for a small community, like you kind of want to strike a balance between what you build really well with kind of a really um, helpful and intuitive architecture and excellent tests and sort of strong foundations, but then also finding a way to like have the iteration on those details of how things are implemented be kind of how, how you can support the iteration on those parts of a code base being fast. Like someone that I worked with um, in the past kind of, we've talked about code bases where not necessarily everything is written super well, but like you have the pieces that you know are not going to be, um, that, that are going to be there for sure, kind of building them in a very long-term way. And then building pieces, like for example, maybe a screen that you're not sure if it's going to be used, like building that in a faster, more kind of experimental way. I actually have a question uh, about that code. Uh, so the, so the, I, I also talk, I saw the talk and in, in your JSON array, there are many types of uh, blocks, right, in, uh, in an array. So when you decode that object, um, so the type of the object is inside as a parameter, right, inside the, inside in the dictionary. So when you decode that to Swift um, struct or class or whatever, like how, mm -hmm. so, um, so how do you do it? How do you do it like, well, so, so you have to open the JSON object to see what type and then match that to Swift object, right? Right. Do you have any tips on that? Because like those kinds of um, feed, like I call it feed UI. So with mm -hmm. feed, uh, like a table view with different kinds of um, contents with different uh, representations. So I want to know if you have any tips on uh, decoding that kind of JSON array. Yeah, um, let me know if this doesn't answer your question, but one thing that, um, I mean, I really love, uh, coming recently from the world of, very recently kind of diving into the world of JavaScript, like Swift is such an awesome language to work in. Um, it is so, it's like, you know, like a parent that is a little bit harsh and then you're like, oh, now I understand. I understand everything my parents told me to do. <laughs> totally made sense. All these rules, it all made sense. I'm glad I kind of trusted them. So language, like working in a, sw a strict language is, can be like that uh, where, you know, I felt like working in JavaScript and writing CSS, it's just like things break in you don't even know when things are broken a lot of the time. Um, and in Swift, like using things like um, switch cases where you don't have a default and you actually have to uh, handle each case thoroughly is really, really helpful. So you, you kind of asked about how the response is like decoded into objects. And um, in that case, like, you know, you, if, let's say like a new type existed on the back end, um, either maybe there's some kind of programmer error where there's like a typo and a string that is the, the type or something like that, or for any, or maybe because a new type was introduced, um, if it's not being handled, like you can, you know, throw, throw an error or log something. Um, and so it ensures that turning, that you're basically, the interface between what I call JSON, which I'm trying to properly call JSON, 
um, the interface between JSON and Swift is like you have this um, kind of structure that is very loose and then you have this programming language that's very strict and what you can do is um, when when you kind of when the two meet you can introduce that strictness and make sure that the the objects are all being handled properly and thoroughly and if there's some kind of I mean there's always a question of where should errors be logged and like if the back end is returning something that's malformed like maybe that's something that should be handled on the back end but it enables you to kind of gain the benefits of you know not like in the talk I I mentioned the table like the post database and the fact that like now it's looser it's less strict because all the post data is just like a json array as opposed to each column having an, a certain expectation of the type um, so it's like looser you don't know exactly what's in there but um, it's much better for kind of a database that needs to work at scale and to be iterated on at scale um, but like it's important and or rather it's helpful then to have the front end be strict so that the benefits of the back, this, the kind of like openness of the back end doesn't mean that the front end has to deal with a lot of unknowns, uh, unknown uh, kind of data. Also, I, um, I kind of wanted to like mo know more into re re like real uh, code level stuff. So mm -hmm. normally I make a Swift uh, struct decodable with mm -hmm. uh, they can uh, decode the the server response right and mm -hmm. if I do that like you know like Alamofire or other networking libraries they decode it for you uh, in mm -hmm. through generic decoding but mm -hmm. if there's there are different kinds of objects in one array uh, mm -hmm. the Swift decodable can't do that right so you have to have some middle as you mentioned, the, the JSON object is really loose and Swift is uh, strict. So you have to have some kind of um, it, uh, intermediate op, uh, objects that's doing the, the conversion work, mm -hmm. right? So you have, mm -hmm. you have to make, I think, I think you have to make one for yourself. So did you, like, did you work on that or did you have to have any like, practical uh, code tips? So you're saying that um, like, you're, you're basically asking about how to, I'm a little bit confused by your question just because the, what's being sent to the backend is not, uh, it's not like a Swift object, right? It's just JSON. So um, can you explain more around like kind of where the issue comes in decoding? Oh yeah, so when I get, uh, get the response from server, uh, there's mm -hmm. a, uh, there's a JSON object and uh, like if uh, there's many different kinds of posts, you know, like photo, text, and those are all in one array. So mm -hmm. you can't uh, just uh, have Swift decodable array that's going to decode that all different kinds of objects in one array, right? Well, one, this doesn't actually, this is just a clarification that Actually, in this architecture, rather than having post types, the content itself has a type, which is, it doesn't answer the kind of details of the decoding aspect, but like, just to clarify that. Um, yeah, I, I, have to, I have to kind of try and remember how 
what happens exactly at that layer. But um, let me think about it. Okay, thank you. So one one thing that I'm looking at is we, we've talked a bit about building software for communities. And I think a lot of people have this idea in their head where when we talk about it, we're talking about, okay, here is the podcasters app, right? The podcasters communication hub. And what I kind of see is not just the podcasters communication hub, but hey, I've got this iOS app that does things for podcasters, right? It'll publish your episodes, it'll manage your RSS feeds, it'll, it'll do all this stuff, and it'll allow you to talk to the other podcasters, right? And so it's not a community app, it's a utility app with a community feature. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you approach that differently from building other community type apps? What you're describing is what I think a lot of companies are now doing, where there's a community, um, a community added on to utilities, like you said, um, where the community adds, maintaining an active community is very challenging. And I don't think every company is trying to do that. I think instead what they want to do is offer the value that people get through each other's experiences and through like camaraderie. And, and of course, camaraderie does often lead to like, um, you know, tangible benefits. Like, um, so I think that, yes, there are social media companies that um, follow the model of like the community is the experience. Um, But something I found interesting working on these kinds of products is that, the great majority of users don't post Um, a small number of users post and then a large number of users kind of read and maybe in a very minimal and private sort of way participate. So maybe they send messages or maybe they comment on posts or share posts with each other externally. Um, And so like even in a community app, is that really a community or is it more like a consumptive like you're consuming content that a small number of users who are kind of visible members of a community create. So that's just kind of an interesting observation, even in community apps, like it's not as communal as things that um, translate to real life. Like let's say you're like in the talk, I talk about a dinner party. Like if you're at a dinner party, generally most people are participating, but in social media, it's like one person is talking and everyone else is listening to them the whole time. Um, And so in these utility apps that have an element of community, I think that companies are trying to kind of give people the benefits of community features without the challenges of something that has to be like, you know, how do we get users to use this every day or many times a day and like kind of have to deal with the business model of a community app, which is really tough. And then, the kind of social challenges of like adding a new community that is so helpful to people or so fun for people that they use it all the time, which is kind of like how you serve that sort of typical community app business model. So when you blend tools and community, you kind of have the best of both worlds, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's the way my wife does Facebook, for example, right? Is she'll scroll through and see what's being put out there, but she doesn't post all that often. And I almost never post on Facebook, right? Um, another example of this is, and um, you know, po- politics all aside, right? Um, everyone's very aware that Donald Trump tweets a lot, right? 
and some people consume it and they get really upset and some people consume it and they're like, heck yeah. And some people are like, okay, so he said another thing. And yeah, and so you have communities with all kinds of different dynamics based on the people who are involved and how they wish to consume and interact. I think uh, on Reddit, people who are just observing and reading, which is the majority, uh, they're called lurkers or something like that. Uh -huh. Pe yep. People lurking around and just reading stuff. And then the, the you know, smaller group of people, they uh, content, content producers effectively. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, there's like, there's a few interesting aspects of it. One is like, do people have stuff they want to share that they think the world wants to hear? Like, it, it takes a lot to feel like what you have to say is at that level. There's like kind of safety. Like, do you feel just like comfortable sharing a thought and not being torn apart online? Um, and um, there's also something that I think drives that that's sort of uh subtle in a lot of um, kind of community apps is the fact that people use them when they want to be alone. Like if you didn't feel like being alone, maybe, maybe you would actually be with someone. Um, and I'm making a generalization, but I think it's often true. It's a way of kind of asynchronously participating in a community. So when it's comfortable for you, you jump in and you participate. And I think that like, that's very different than that dynamic of being with other people in real life. And I think, um, I mean, I, I like it. I like to use social media that way, but um, I think that it changes like whether you are participating actively or not, like, because you're kind of using it in order to be alone, but have like a taste of what's going on with the people around you. Right. And I can see that also then informing, okay, we've got this community, we've given them sort of text and image or text and emoji or something like that. And now we're going to, we're going to, because then you can layer it in, right? And you can make it reflect the experience that you're seeing. Mm -hmm. So do you recommend then that people have like a separate view in their app for the community if they're going to do sort of the utility community type thing? Or should they have a separate app? Um, one example that I can think of, we just did an episode on React Native Radio, um, which is also mobile related, but it's for the Call of Duty a companion app, which is built in React Native. That's why they were on that show. But, um, you know, I could see that where it's, hey, here's the QuickBooks app and here's the QuickBooks community app, right? Or I could see it also where you just, you know, you tap and you ask your question to the community forum and it just works. Yeah. First of all, I'm really interested in checking out that app. Like I don't play Call of Duty, but I think it's cool that they have a companion app. Yeah. Um, I almost bought the game just so I could play with the companion <laughs> app. How, how messed up is that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, and there's so much community built into gaming too. Like I, um, I'm kind of like gaming adjacent. I don't play games, but I love people who develop games because I think it's such a fun type of engineering where like rule, there's no like rules for user experience. It's not like everything is sort of built in a standard way. Like many iOS apps, it's like everything is like, looks like slime or like, it's just much more, um, like it's a very joyful type of tech, but um, yeah, to answer your question, I think that it has to do with meeting people where they are. Um, so that might mean you build community tools into your product. Um, if uh, that, you know, that's one way of meeting people where they are, but maybe people don't really use your app often and they actually use like another 
messaging app and like maybe something like an iMessage um, app would make sense also. Like, I think that we don't need to develop technology that is giving people more work. And also I think there's a lot of like fatigue with constant communication. So mm-hmm. you kind of like want to offer something that doesn't, you know, introduce extra like that, that just people wouldn't choose for themselves. Like if you ask them, like, where would you prefer to, to kind of have these conversations um, from a technical standpoint? I think, I mean, I think it, there's no reason not to have that kind of like messaging functionality built into an app. And actually it can be, it can be cool when there's additional features that people are using because like sometimes those things get integrated. Like when I was at Tumblr, I worked on messaging. Like when I joined that team, we had just started, we had just built a basic messaging experience. And what I ended up doing, which is related to the re-architecture I mentioned before, was starting to introduce creative features into messaging. Um, So just like the ability to share um, like media, like all the only thing that was supported when I joined was text. So kind of adding support for sending like GIFs and creating GIFs and sending images and using like the kind of Tumblr uh, canvas for, you know, adding things to images. Like, so it can be nice to build things into an existing product because there are things in that product that can kind of easily become part of both and it can be reused that like maybe people really love, um, you know, uh, maybe you have something in your game that has to do with like, like on Reddit, there are different kind of titles that people have, I guess. Um, And maybe you want that in a community feature, like maybe in a kind of conversation that has multiple people, you want to integrate the ability to like kind of nominate who is like the, you know, who is the uh, moderator of some conversation, uh, for example, and you can reuse abstractions and concepts in different types of features. So um, I would say like meeting people where they are is the most important aspect of it, but it's fun to kind of, it can be also good to keep them in the same code base just from the perspective of like iterating and reusing code and features. One of my favorite communities in programming these days is the Angular community. Every time I go to an Angular conference or meet up with some of my friends who are in the Angular community, I have a great time. And a lot of them have wound up on Adventures in Angular. So if you're doing front-end development, you're looking for a way to keep current on the Angular ecosystem, and you want to have a good time listening to fun people talk about great topics related to Angular, then go check out Adventures in Angular at adventuresinangular.com. And speaking of like meeting where people they are, like a few years back, um, I actually uh, tried to make a community-based app like for a, at a small startup. Uh, it was like a community for uh, people interested in like high-end uh, fashion, uh, uh, like high-end fashion, and but actually it didn't work out so well. So, um, like I began to think like because I I like personally I think the reason is that those people already have a community somewhere. So they, they already have like a, like, 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 a, um, like Reddit for Korea. So there's this, a special site. So they already have formed a big community there. So I, I thought like there, there was no reason for them to like move their community to our app. So do you have any, since you are in the community app, uh, 
business for a long time. Do you have any like a criteria or standard to which like what kind of community for community for X is like will work out or mm. like or it won't? Yeah, um, it's such a good point, and I think that's sort of the starting point of a lot of um, community apps. Is like there is a community already, and we want to serve them better. And I have a lot of different thoughts about that. Let me start with the random thoughts and think of think if there's a criteria. So one thought is often many kind of experiences are built into the tech giants, like maybe like into Facebook, for example. Um, and Facebook has a massive team and so many different features. Um, and a lot of the fundamental things that people um, want to do, like let's say support each other in their health journey uh, through community or about to talk about high fashion or like resell high fashion or something. You can do all those things at Facebook. The reality is that a lot of people don't use Facebook and it's not there like at the moment there are so many young people who don't use Facebook and in the future, like that will only increase. So there, I think, and, and I, personally, it didn't seem like that was going to happen even a few years ago. And now it feels like Facebook is so obsolete. Like I create a lot, I kind of curate and organize a lot of events and I can't really rely on Facebook anymore because people don't even check. Um, so I feel like there, there's a sense that like people's needs are being served by tech giants. And I actually think that like, that's an overstatement and that people are, can be open to participating in new communities if they number one, even hear about them. And then two, like if you're actually offering someone something that's better, like what that makes me think of is like, you know, sometimes you build a feature for someone that is supposedly optimizing something, right? Like they can, you like click fewer times, but that feature, if it's slow and if someone like can just manually do it, they'll do it manually because they don't want, it's not creating that magical, helpful experience. Like there's some, you know, more straightforward way to do it. So I guess that's a way of saying that, um, like you need to really be offering someone something. And I think when it comes to community like for let's talk about facebook so people have facebook has given people a lot of reasons not to trust how facebook uses their data right so um i recently spoke with someone who's creating a community for people with chronic illnesses and the value that people get from that community is the stories that other people tell because people often it takes years for them to even get a diagnosis. And what this platform lets them do is compare symptoms and see if symptoms sound familiar, right? So that entire experience is based on the idea that people are willing to share their very private stories and data on a platform because it can be very helpful to others. Even though Facebook has the technology to do that, and there are Facebook groups for health, I just don't see that becoming the destination for sharing your, you know, health diagnoses, because that is not a platform. Number one, it's a very public platform where all of the information about you and who you are is very identifiable, right? So there's an element of a lack of trust there because maybe you don't want to be super public. 
Um, there's like the company itself and their business model and where the data goes. So like, I guess what I would say is that the tech in a lot of these products is very similar. Like the actual tech that you build, like you could kind of duplicate it and reuse it in a lot of different situations uh, in a lot of different products. But the difference is like, number one is like the brand and kind of to what extent people trust a company and a brand with their experience, whether that means their data or, you know, like, do I feel good spending a lot of time on this platform or do I feel kind of shitty because like they're not ethical? Um, Those sorts of things, like people's relationship to a company um, is an important aspect of it. And then like what people, yeah, what people know a company to be about their values. Um, And then like, smaller companies can often serve users needs better. Like maybe there's some aspect of selling luxury fashion that you understand and can optimize really well. Like, um, you know, if you're, I don't know, like uh, I was thinking about like Bloomberg terminals and like, I've never actually used one, but I would assume that like the user experience is very tailored to exactly what people are using Bloomberg terminals for. Um, And so like, Yes, you can find that data elsewhere, but the experience is tailored for, and and in that case, the difference is money, like a lot of money, right? And speed. And um, so I think that there needs to be kind of a healthy mix of like your fundamental trust and desire to support a company. And then like the experience offering enough value that it makes it much better than the lazier alternative that maybe you don't even like that much, but if it's easier and it's basically the same value, people will stick with what they already use. So actually I left the company, but the company really like pivoted to like, like just what you said. So they started focusing less on community and more on those benefits, like benefits and serving the small community better. So I think, and they're actually doing well, doing well right now. So yeah, I think what you said like stands like it uh, it comes to me and I understand it. Yeah. I'm really glad that they're they're killing it. <laughs> yeah. You made it sound like um that it didn't work out, so that's great. Oh yeah. Awesome. Anything else that we should uh jump on before we do picks? Um All right. yeah, I guess I think that, that pretty much covers it. Cool. Well now I need to create a community for uh Podcast listeners, right? Uh, I was going to say podcast listeners with some very specific trait, like yeah. um, who, who work out of spaceships, maybe. Oh, there we go. With your background, yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Um, Alex, do you have some picks for us? I do. Uh, OmniGraffle, a fantastic piece of software. I use it for all the diagramming, charting for architectures and designs and stuff like that. It's 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 great. It's uh, I guess diagram building software software. Mm-hmm. But you could even do people do some like design for icons and things like that with it. I guess you need to be very proficient though. I just do my little circles and arrows. It's awesome. Awesome. Very cool. Well, I'm going to go ahead. I've used OmniGraffle, by the way, and I, I like it too. All right. So I've got a couple of picks here. The first one is I've been working on a couple of uh, online trainings 
Um, one of them is something that I'm going to be putting together to help uh, drive sponsorship traffic. Um, what, and so I'm basically just going to walk through the process of um, taking advantage of podcasts to do marketing. So it could be being a guest on the podcast. It could be being a sponsor of a podcast. It could be running your own podcast. Um, and those are going to kind of be the, the focuses there. And uh, anyway, so I'm going to be working on some videos and a podcast about marketing through podcasts. Um, most of that's going to wind up at marketingviapodcasts.com. Um, but what I'm using to kind of get everything together for it is called Course Creator Pro. And uh, I'll have to find a link here. I have an affiliate link if you go sign up. Um, it's not a cheap program, but it is terrific. And um, basically what it does is it, uh, it just walks you through the process of creating video courses. So essentially, yeah, it's just going to walk you through, okay, here's how you create a podcast or here's how you, um, it's not going to go too, too in depth on how to run a podcast. I, I think I have another course for that that I want to do, but it's going to walk you through, okay, once you have your podcast running, here's how you pick topics. Here's how you, you know, target your target market, things like that. And, uh, you know, here's how to share it and, and get more people in and things like that. So, um, anyway, uh, so course creator pro it's, it's going to be awesome. Yeah. I think that's it. I think that's all I've got this week. Uh, Tamar, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I have some picks. Okay. Pick number one is a site called arena. Arena is, um, a, basically a research tool. Um, you can attach, you basically create a, I forget what it's actually called in the kind of lingo of the platform, but you basically create a collection of like posts that link out to articles or quotes or images. And the way the platform is used is to kind of like explore abstract ideas. Um, and it's just really cool. It's a very cool and kind of creative experimental tech community that uses this platform. And I really recommend it, um, which leads me to pick two, which is writing a novel um, or writing a book in general. Um, I'm currently um, actually writing my first novel. Um, I've been working on it for um, almost three years. And right oh, wow. now I'm in the process of wrapping up my first um, draft, like my first kind of full draft. Um, and I've been using Arena to do research for that novel. Um, the novel is kind of very, uh, it's related to climate change and I have been using it to kind of understand specific subtopics that I'm writing about. Um, also topics in engineering kind of separately, but I really enjoy using that research tool for that creative process. And that process is a pick because I really kind of, I think for all of us as engineers building new things, like building new things in a different kind of space with a different part of our mind is really, really helpful to kind of both like it's, it's fun. And it also is really helpful as we kind of create new, whether it's a new code base or a new product, like it kind of builds those muscles of like introducing a lot of new ideas and experimenting. Um, and I had one more pick, which is, so first one is arena. Second one is writing a novel and using cool new tech to research it. And the third one is actually a space in New York uh, where I live called Baby Castles. And Baby Castles is a, it's a art gallery that focuses on the intersection of art and technology. And I go there for a monthly event called Word Hack, 
which is about the intersection of technology and language. So a lot of talks about sometimes about experimental programming languages. Sometimes the talks are about bots that generate poetry or, you know, that are able to generate iambic pentameter. So it's a very inspiring place if you are excited about using tech to solve creative problems. And I really recommend that space and the community there. Awesome. Uh, one last thing before we wrap up, if people want to connect with you online, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, so I'd love if you hear this and you want to learn more, definitely reach out. Um, Twitter's probably the best way to um, either like Twitter DMs or you can email me. Uh, my information will probably be under the podcast somewhere on your podcast listening app. Um, my email is just my full name, Tamar Nachmani at gmail.com. And on Twitter, I'm Tamarshmallows. Um, oh, nice. And yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, I'd love to hear from you and hear your thoughts and hear about kind of the new community apps you're building. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap up, folks. Uh, Max out. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.